Okay, thank you everybody for joining in. This is Griffin Bridgers with Hutchins & Associates. This is the first of what I hope will be a recurring series of monthly estate planning update conference calls that I hope to host. Um, so as we go along, um, I wanted to thank everybody first of all for being my group of guinea pigs and uh, tuning in for the first time to this. Uh, I hope to produce content that is relevant and helpful to you and your clients, but um, that also is presented in a pretty concise form that you can take back to them that's easily digested and doesn't hit uh, a lot of very technical nuances, although I'm happy to dive into those technical nuances if you want as well. Um, for those of you who are just joining in, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's helpful if you go ahead and mute your phone, that way we don't hear coughs or breathing or anything over the, uh, the conference call. In the future, I hope to have this up on WebEx or another type of service, but um, Obviously, I would like to scale to that point where the number of participants um, necessitate that, so I'm just kind of using what resources I have at hand for the time being to uh, conduct the conference call, but um, there will be improvements as we go along, so I hope to have every one of you joining me in future months and growing with this uh, monthly teleconference as well. Uh, but today's topic, as I mentioned in my email introducing this conference, is marital trusts and how your clients can use them. Um, and what I hope to do is give uh, some new light to a common problem that is often not recognized by clients or even by their financial advisors, you, and uh, give you hopefully some solutions that can improve the estate plans for your clients and also could possibly help you to uh, maintain assets under management for a longer period of time uh, in the event one of your clients who is a spouse and a married couple uh, dies. So um, once again, for those of you logging in, please uh, mute your phones. Um, but we'll go ahead and get started with the, uh, the meat of today's presentation. Um, the most common adage I guess I hear from married couples and other clients who come into my office is that our situation is simple and we don't really need any sort of complex planning. And I often tell people that, yeah, the assessment that your situation is simple makes sense right now in this moment, but you're creating a plan that is going to react to situations that arise down the road, uh, maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. Uh, so it's important to also plan around what can happen. And with that being said, the most simple type of plan I typically see is what's known as a sweetheart will, where everything is left to a surviving spouse, and then at second death, everything would then at that point go to the kids. On its face, that looks like a very friendly, equal plan that treats everybody very fairly. But there can be problems that arise. Once when, when a married couple comes into my office, they're on the same page at that point. But once one of them dies, in a situation where everything goes outright to the survivor, uh, the surviving spouse can easily change the outcome of the estate plan, either by changing the terms of his or her will or just through the use of the assets during their life. So to address that, uh, the most common tech planning technique used is what's known as a marital trust. 
So before we dive into the technical details of a marital trust, I will mention that I presented those two issues, changing the plan at death or through the use of assets. So a marital trust typically has two objectives. One, it restricts the power of the surviving spouse to transfer assets at his or her death. And then two, it also restricts the right of the use of assets by the surviving spouse during life. So what we're going to see is that the marital trust typically has first, during life, terms that dictate uh, how much of the income and principle of that trust can be used by the surviving spouse, and then two, terms that dictate at the death of that spouse, where exactly do those assets go? Either they might go automatically to uh, children or other beneficiaries, or they may be able to backdoor the process and allow a surviving spouse to dictate on a limited basis where they might go, perhaps through a power of appointment. Now, a lot of this type of planning with marital trusts traditionally has shoehorned into estate tax planning as well. So, one aspect you may be aware of in estate planning is the fact that you can leave an unlimited amount of property to your spouse and essentially not pay estate or gift tax on that property being left to your spouse due to what's known as the unlimited marital deduction. And essentially that just acts as a deduction against your taxable gifts for the year or against your gross estate uh, to say that property passing to a spouse is not taxed. But there are two ways to look at this. Um, it isn't necessarily an estate tax or gift tax avoidance technique to leave property to a spouse. Instead of it's more it's more of a deferral technique. If you leave property to a spouse and rely on the marital deduction, what is going to happen is that at the death of that spouse, uh, at second death, he or she is going to have to include all of those assets in his or her estate for estate tax purposes. So ultimately, your spouse is going to pay taxes on the combined value of their estate that they've accumulated individually, as well as the cumulative value of whatever you've left to them and whatever is left over at death. So essentially, the marital deduction looks at the family as a unit, the married couple as a unit, in calculating estate and gift taxes. So in order to use the marital deduction in creating a marital trust, certain requirements have to be met. And those requirements happen to have a lot of compatibility with the goals that we just discussed of restricting the right to transfer at death and restricting the right to access of those assets during life. So the first requirement that is often used is that the spouse can be the only beneficiary of that trust during his or her life. So with respect to both income and principal, in order to qualify for a estate or gift tax marital deduction, nobody but the spouse can have any right to receive income or principal from that trust while the spouse is living. Now, in looking at those rights, the income right is the one that is the most nuanced. The second major requirement to be eligible for the marital deduction in a marital trust is that the spouse has to have the right to receive all of the income of that trust at least annually. 
So if anybody is familiar with the concept of a life estate, really a marital trust kind of mirrors that. A life estate is um, a property titling technique that gives a spouse the exclusive right to use and income from property during life, and then at death, it would automatically go to remainder beneficiaries who were determined by the original donor of that property. Well, that's the same setup we have here. So, so far, just to recap, we've looked at marital trusts accomplishing two goals. One is restricting the power to transfer at death by the surviving spouse, and two, restricting the right of use of the assets during life by the spouse as well. And the estate tax and gift tax requirements in order to qualify a transfer to a marital trust for the marital deduction um, are that one, the spouse has to be the exclusive beneficiary for both income and principal, and two, the spouse has to have the right to receive all of the income of the trust, at least annually. Now beyond that, as long as you've met those core requirements, um, if you have somebody who has a potential estate or gift tax problem, then the sky is the limit beyond that in terms of how exactly you want to design that marital trust. Where a lot of the flexibility comes in typically lies in how the principle of the marital trust can be used by the surviving spouse. The most commonly used approach I see is that the spouse typically has the ability to receive distributions of principle for purposes of health education, support, and maintenance. That's known as an ascertainable standard, and it gives the trustee a guideline as to when and how much of the trust's principle should be distributed to the surviving spouse. Now, the biggest problem with that approach comes in selecting the trustee who is going to be responsible for administering those types of distributions. You have to have a trustee who um, doesn't sway too far in either direction, either being too conservative in conserving the um, principle of the trust for the ultimate beneficiaries down the road, the children, but also who isn't too liberal in just having a green light and open checkbook to giving the spouse whatever access to principle that he or she might want. So you have to have a middle of the road type of selection. And it's possible too to have the spouse be the trustee of their own marital trust. But then again, you run into the issue of whether or not the spouse can be trusted in that type of a scenario. Uh, the risk you run in making the spouse their own trustee is that if for some reason maybe they were to remarry down the road, who's to say they wouldn't take principal out of the trust and redirect it to a new spouse if they remarry, or maybe to new children if they have additional children after the fact, or new stepchildren. Um, so that really kind of illustrates another core principle behind marital trusts, and another goal we're trying to accomplish is that through the use of trust assets, um, even without a marital trust, you always run the risk of having uh, maybe your current children disinherited, um, or having too much be given to a new family at the expense of your existing family in a mixed marriage situation. So um, 
Once again, just to recap, the most common principal distribution scheme is through an ascertainable standard where the trustee can distribute for health education, support, and maintenance of the surviving spouse. But once again, the issue you have to resolve in doing that is selecting who the trustee will be. So some other solutions I have seen used and have used in my practice to work around that are to perhaps create broader guidelines or narrower guidelines on how much principal can be taken out of the trust. A common approach I've seen is to use what's known as a unitrust distribution, which basically compares the total amount of what the spouse is receiving in both income and principal for the year and says that at the end of the year, he or she will receive a set percent of the value of the trust assets. Um, maybe it is uh, 3%, 5%, 7%, some amount that is going to help provide for them, but is also going to make sure that this, the trust isn't prematurely exhausted or exhausted at the expense of um, the couple's children, ultimately. Now, to comply with tax requirements that all income be distributed, typically a unitrust distribution will say that the spouse will receive the greater of the income of the trust or that set percent, be it 3%, 5%, whatever the case might be. Another approach I've seen used, which can be in addition to um, the ascertainable standard for principal distributions or could even be a standalone type of a approach, is to give the spouse to, the right to withdraw the greater of $5,000 or 5% of the trust assets annually. Now you might be asking, why not do more than $5,000 or 5%? What is the significance of those numbers? The significance is that by having the right to withdraw with no strings attached, it gives the spouse a power of appointment for gift tax purposes. And if, say, at the end of the year, the spouse chooses not to take out that $5,000 or 5%, they will be treated for gift tax purposes as having allowed a general power of appointment to lapse. And the significance of that is that it is treated indirectly as a gift to the couple's children ultimately down the road. So um, by not taking out that $5,000 or 5% in a given year, it enlarges the pool of assets that the children will ultimately benefit from. So because of that, it increases, it's essentially a gift to those children from the surviving spouse, even though the surviving spouse never actually owned that property. Uh, so because of that, what the IRS uh, regulations and the tax code say is that that gift tax problem will not arise if the lapse of a general power of appointment is limited to the greater of $5,000 or 5% of the trust assets. So that is the significance of that 5 by 5 limitation. Once again, that's an option you have, but it's one that could be used alone if the assets of the trust are significant enough or could be used in connection with um, maybe that ascertainable standard of health education support and maintenance, uh, especially if you have a situation where maybe an independent trustee is in place. Now finally, the most restrictive type of policy I've seen and the one that is um, 
that almost always necessitates having some sort of independent trustee in place is a fully discretionary principal distribution standard. And that's one where the trustee has free reign and full discretion to say that the, tr the, the surviving spouse can receive whatever amount of principal the trustee determines to be appropriate uh, or necessary. So uh, that could even be zero on a year-to-year -year basis if the trustee um, dictates that. But uh, once again, you have to have uh, a balance of one having an independent trustee who will be conservative enough to preserve assets for um, the remainder beneficiaries, i.e. the couple's children or other family members, or but will also be liberal enough to make sure that the spouse receives enough to live off of. And my final point on all of this with the principal distributions is that typically the overarching goal is to make sure that the spouse can at least maintain his or her standard of living that he or she is accustomed to through the administration of this marital trust. Uh, so a couple more points I'm going to make before we uh, open up for questions are, one, uh, in terms of funding the marital trust, it's important to kind of look at the objective and what is going on um, in the trust itself. Um, typically, the overall investment objective for a marital trust has been to maximize trust income. So I confess that I'm not a CFP, so I can't really... Um, talk on the same level as you, the participants, in terms of uh, investment and portfolio design within a marital trust, but typically you look for more uh, dividend-producing stocks and maybe interest-producing types of investments and securities instead of investments that are maximizing capital appreciation over time. Now that is the traditional approach for marital trusts. I will say that one item that runs contrary to that to keep in mind is that I mentioned earlier that for estate tax purposes, the assets of the marital trust are included in the spouse's gross estate uh, upon his or her death. One added benefit you get for that estate tax inclusion is that the assets in the marital trust also get a step up in income tax basis to their fair market value at the date of the uh, surviving spouse's death. So with that, sometimes it might be good to also strike a balance where maybe capital appreciation during the life of the spouse could be wiped out with that potential step up in basis. So um, investing for income is the traditional approach, but it could also be helpful to kind of look at a broader approach of the portfolio, not just for the spouse, but for the family as a whole and maximize opportunities to get that basis step up um, where necessary. One other point I want to make is that I harped earlier on the estate and gift tax qualifications of a marital trust, um, and those were important, especially in the la you know at a time 10, 20 years ago when the estate tax exclusion was much lower than it is now. But being that the estate tax exclusion amount is now 5.49 million per individual and is set to increase to 5.6 million in 2018, it's not necessarily always important to 
maximize estate tax planning uh, when you're dealing with marital trusts. And with that as well, I will also mention that in the past, marital trusts had to be used as a component of a t uh, planning for a taxable estate in connection often with another type of credit shelter type of gift to children or children and a spouse as a group, which would maximize um, each uh, individual's estate tax exclusion amount. A lot of that planning has gone away, one, with the increase in the estate tax exclusion, and two, with the uh, introduction in 2011 of what's known as the portability election, um, which allows um, the married couple to essentially treat themselves as a group and stack their estate tax exclusion amounts. Um, and what this results in is that if one spouse dies and leaves everything to the survivor, whether it be outright or in a marital trust, before portability, what that meant is that the first spouse to die would end up not using their full estate tax exclusion amount, because typically the exclusion amount would only shelter transfers to non-spouse beneficiaries. But with portability, you can now plan around that where if everything goes to a surviving spouse, the first spouse to die has the ability to make a portability, portability election on their estate tax return um, so that the surviving spouse can use not only their own estate tax exclusion amount, but also the exclusion amount of the first spouse to die. So um, for a married couple now, that could mean stacking your exclusions to more easily uh, pass 10.98 million in wealth tax-free to children and other beneficiaries as opposed to just 5.49 million if you, per, if you were to only rely on the exclusion amount of this survivor. But all that being said, oftentimes you might not have a client who has um, a net worth um, of 10.98 million or might have a taxable estate. So it may not even be necessary to structure a marital trust for the exclusive benefit of a spouse. So with that, you can also set up trusts maybe for the cumulative benefit of both um, a spouse and children as a group so that they can all benefit that also eliminates the possibility that the children get nothing until both mom and dad are deceased. Uh, and this could be used in connection with a marital trust or as a standalone type of planning technique where maybe you just have uh, some type of family trust which uh, benefits the family as a group, both surviving spouse and children in issue. And with that, you have unlimited discretion as to how you want to design that family trust. You could have uh, income all being distributed to the spouse, or you could have income being held back and only being distributed to the spouse and children, maybe for their needs through an ascertainable standard like health, education, support, and maintenance, or otherwise. And you can also use the other income and principal distribution structures I mentioned earlier, such as a unit trust or a five by five withdrawal. Um, now the problem with this type of approach is that even though the family does not have an estate tax problem um, and that would mandate the use of such a trust or support the use of such a trust, um, 
when you create this type of a scenario, the surviving spouse will not have the assets of this type of a trust included in his or her gross estate. So because of that, you miss out on that potential for a step up in income tax basis at the death of the surviving spouse. So either you have to completely forego that potential step up, or you have to use some other means to secure it. One way you could do so is by giving the surviving spouse maybe a general power of appointment over some or all of the trust property. But by doing so, the risk you run is that you cut out that the very first goal we looked at, which is restricting the right of the spouse to transfer that property at his or her death. Um, so with a general power of appointment, you're not necessarily giving them carte blanche to transfer to whomever they want, but the fact that it is a general power of appointment means that the surviving spouse has to benefit in some way. So they could appoint those assets maybe to their estate or to the creditors of their estate if it's a testamentary general power of appointment. But that being said, um, having looked at the income and investment strategies, a marital trust can be funded with any sorts of assets under the sky um, with one restriction. If you want that uh, trust to qualify for estate tax purposes, then the spouse has to have the ability to convert unproductive property into productive property. So if you were to say allocate all investment assets to children in an estate plan and maybe leave personal use assets to a spouse in a marital trust, maybe such as a, a residence or just cars and other household effects, uh, the spouse would have the ability to convert those to investment assets so that there is an income stream being created. And that being said, the last point I want to make is that when you're creating a marital trust, some of you might have seen the term Q-tip election being used in connection with the concept of a marital trust. Basically, a Q-tip election gives a little bit of added flexibility after the fact with respect to estate or gift tax planning. Um, I mentioned the marital deduction applying when a marital trust is structured in a certain way, i.e., the spouse is the sole beneficiary for life, and the spouse has the right to all income of the trust, at least annually. The Q-tip election allows you to elect to apply the marital deduction to only a part of that trust, or even not apply it at all. Once again, that can give some flexibility after the death of the first spouse to die, uh, because by not applying the marital deduction in full, one, it can keep those assets for which no Q-tip election was made out of the estate of the deceased, uh, out of the estate of the second spouse to die, and it can also um, allow the estate tax exclusion amount of the first spouse to die to apply to that portion of the trust for which no Q-tip election is taken. So um, it's important to kind of build in that Q-tip language in order to provide maximum tax planning flexibility uh, because I mentioned that we're planning in a bubble where we know what's going to happen today, but in 
with the likelihood that down the road maybe the estate tax could either be repealed or it could go the other way with the exclusion amount being reduced, having that added Q-tip election in the trust allows for a certain level of flexibility and adaptation to future estate and gift tax changes. But that's all I have today on marital trusts. So um, what I'm doing is I'm taking a recording of this uh, lecture today, and I'm going to type up just kind of a brief outline of what I discuss after the fact. So if you'd like to receive an, out an outline of what we discussed today, shoot me a quick email after the uh, presentation, and I'll make sure that that is distributed to you um, once I have it formatted and typed up. Um, but in, in future months, too, I anticipate having a written outline in advance of the call as well. So that will be coming. Um, but uh, I wanted to uh, open up the floor to any questions that you might have. Um, now, given that this is a conference call situation, um, uh, it could turn into organized chaos with everyone chiming in with questions. But if you have any, feel free to unmute your phone and ask away, and I'll do my best to kind of control the chaos. Okay, any questions? Going once, going twice. Okay, well that is it for today's presentation. Once again, I thank each and every one of you for uh, tuning in. Um, I, hope, I hope I gave you at least a little uh, clarity on marital trusts and how they are used. Um, but look forward to hosting in future months. Um, next month for December, I am still in the process of picking a topic, but it will be on December 12th, the second Tuesday in December when we have this call again. Um, so I look forward to uh, each and every one of you joining if you're interested at that point. Um, if you have any pr uh, questions after this presentation, please feel free to email me as well. Um, but thanks again, and I hope everyone has a great rest of their day.